The themes of our Advent message um, have been mulling around in my heart as we cross the new year. And today, from, from, from those, I, I pray, spirit-helped churnings in my heart, I want to bring you a New Year's message that within it, in keeping with the idea of New Year's you know, 2021 visioning and goals and resolutions and all that stuff, I want to bring to you a goal that I think is foundational, I think is essential, I think is wonderful, and, and I think is eternal. I, I think it would be the greatest thing in your life and the greatest thing in my life if I could say my goal for 2021 is to see God's glory better than I ever have. And I think in 2022, the greatest thing you could say about your life is if you said my goal in 2022 is to see God's glory better than I ever have. So today is the end of all needs to creatively explore possible New, new Year's resolutions. You have your new resolution for the rest of your life. Really, I, I, I kind of half jokingly, but I really do mean that, that there's no better goal than we can have than, 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 than seeing and savoring God through Jesus Christ better than we have before. That is the most urgent need of our lives and that is the greatest fulfillment we could have is to see God better, more deeply, and more clearly than we ever have before. And so that's my appeal to you, that you would make 2021 a year in which pursuing the seeing of God's glory, the priority of your life. And some of you guys already you know, have this on your heart. Some of you guys uh, are familiar with this God's glory vernacular. Um, and some of you guys aren't. It's, it's confusing to you. And, and, um, and I, I hope that I can help in either situation to either reinforce that conviction that God's glory is worth pursuing or to make it clear to you that it is um, why it is, is worth pursuing. So, um, and again, I, the, you will hear reverberating themes we've been going through. And it's, it's not because I, I don't have other books or themes in scripture to go to. I, I just have a my best sense is I have a conviction that this is a good place to continue to reverberate on. So please bear with me if you think, well, we, haven't we talked about this? It is one thing to talk. It is one thing to hear. It is, a, it is a different thing to really apprehend with the heart. So I don't mind going over some consistent themes with you guys. And by God's grace, I hope that you, you will be able to see them better for it. So let me pray before we get into the, the thick of things here. God, we've been praying this morning and we pray again. Would you Show yourself through your word today. God, I pray you'd protect me from anything that would be a distraction to your people this morning or any ways I might commit error in your preaching and your word. Would you either prevent that or, um, or help people to overlook that in their hearts and, and, and Lord, receive you through whatever you want to say through your word today. Lord, I, I just, I need your help. We need your help. God, I, I yeah, I just need your help. We need your help. pray in Jesus' name for your help. Amen. So I, I have four points this morning, and my first point is this. The human race has a terrible and soul-destroying malady. We are blind to God's glory. We have a terrible and soul-destroying malady. We're blind to God's glory as, as, a, as a species, as a, as a race of people. The last two Sundays, we've been reflecting on this truth, maybe with different words. Last Sunday, um, two Sundays ago, I, I spent a whole message on, a Christmas message I said was maybe a, a weird message for you. It was called um, Christmas and the Wrath of God. And we, we meditated a lot on Romans 1 where we're told that though we were created to see God's worth, we were created to see his value, and through seeing that worth and that value of God, we were meant to reflect the truth of that glory in our lives of, of worship and in love, of kindness and righteousness, we despised that glory. Our, our greatest sin 
our greatest sin, the sin that has fathered a billion bastard children's sins in lesser sins. The greatest sin is not first our sin against one another. And we're, we're, this is very hard for us to see spiritually, by the way. It's connected to how hard it is to see God's glory. But our, our greatest sin is not what we've done to each other. It's not sexual immorality or racism, neglecting the poor, laziness at work, as terrible as those things may be. It's none of those things, firstly, that have to do with how we treat one another. Our greatest and most damaging sin is how we have treated God. We have, as a race, willfully rejected God. God, specifically in the language of Scripture in Romans 1, 21. We have not glorified God as God. Romans 1 tells us that although we knew God was the creator, although all people deep in their hearts know that there is a God who is a creator, who is holy and good and deserving of, of all worship and devotion, we have exchanged the glory of God. We've exchanged holding on to his value and treasuring him above all things. We've turned that off and we've exchanged that for a lie, the Bible says. And we gave our first love to ourselves and to created things. We said, essentially, in our choice, God, you are not worth my real worship. And that was a lie. We said, you're not worth my deepest love. And that was a lie. Romans 1 says, you are not my worth my life's pursuit. And that was a lie. It was a willful lie that we chose and told ourselves. And we said, I'm going to give myself to what you have made instead of you. This is our greatest transgression. That we did not treasure God as he should be treasured. That we do not honor God as he should be honored. That we do not delight in him as he should be delighted in. And in this rejection of God, we were made to be blind in him. We, we blinded ourselves. Verse, uh, Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. After choosing to reject God, something dreadful happened to our humanity. We became blind foolish in our thinking. We, we can't think straight and think right about reality. And we became darkened in our minds. We don't see the world. We don't see the universe. We don't see things as they truly are. And this, this initially self-chosen blindness became a settled and lasting blindness. We would not see him eventually became we could not see him. We would not see his worth eventually became a could not see his worth. That's, I believe, the tapestry of Romans 1 as you trace it through. And the news keeps getting bad because God, because we despised his glory and traded him in for substitutes and prostituted and whored ourselves to the created things to give our greatest allegiance and highest loyalty to those created things and pushed him to the side. In his righteous, just wrath, Romans 1 says, he hands us over to our chosen blindness and to the desires and lusts and wants in us that have nothing to do with treasuring him and loving him and serving him and reflecting his glory and have everything to do with exalting ourselves and trying to satisfy ourselves every way. This is what Romans 1 depicts. And, and I've said before, this is, this is so crucial for our understanding. I'm not saying these things because I want us to be in this endless parade of depressing texts. I'm saying this because it is from seeing this reality that, that our greatest and worst sin is purposely rejecting God's truth and his worth and his value, this chosen blindness to him, that you understand scripture that you understand grace, that you understand the mission of redemption, and that you understand that all secondary sins of greed and covetousness and grumbling and fighting and harshnesses, harshness among ourselves come from our greatest sin, which is the rejection of God being God in our lives as he is meant to be. So point two, it, so it might be said that the goal of redemption 
is to restore our sight of God's glory through Christ. The goal of redemption is to cure our blindness, that we might see God's value, again, the way we were meant to see it, to give us back the ability to rightly see God, to rightly apprehend his worth and his value for what it really is. In many places, scripture explains salvation as seeing what we have been blind to. In John 8, seeing God's glory, his, his true value, his greatness through Jesus is a great theme. And we'll come back to it later. But briefly, John 8 says that Jesus came into the world. Jesus says, these are his words, so that those who do not see may see. Jesus came into the world so that we who do not see, who do not see rightly, will see again. And this, is, this comes in the very beginning of John's whole gospel. In the beginning of John's gospel, this was part of our Christmas text last week, remember? But notice the seeing in this gospel proclamation, here in, 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 um, in this Christmas proclamation of John 1. I have a slide for it. Next slide. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Go down to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, has explained him to us. Jesus has revealed God to us. No one has seen God, John says, but Jesus has revealed him to us. This is why he came, so that we might see him again. This is how John begins his gospel. But do you know how he starts to wrap up his gospel? We go to the back end of John. In John 17, Jesus is praying for us, his disciples, and all who would believe in him are, are the object, the target of his praying. He's praying for his 12, and he's also praying for everyone who believe in him according to the message that the 12 will bring and Paul will bring to the world. And in John 17, Jesus says this in his prayer. At the heart of his prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me will be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus' prayer, that you would see his glory that the Father has given him. And this is, we'll come back to this too, he's praying this because he loves you so much. And he knows this is the greatest thing that could be done for his father and the greatest thing that could be done for you is that you would see the glory of Jesus Christ and not be blind to his value and his worth. He's about to go to the cross and Jesus is putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. He's gonna pay for everything he's praying, so to speak. And he knows that his shed blood born for us, will bear all of God's wrath and pay for every last one of our sins. And knowing that this sacrifice will vindicate God's honor as the one who takes sin seriously and vindicate God's honor as the one who loves sinners selflessly, he, I'm using a bit crude terms, he cashes in on all that he's about to do with this prayer. God, let them see our glory. Let them see my glory, Father, which is your glory. Because Jesus perfectly radiates. That's all he does is he radiates the Father. And he's saying, let these rebels who have forsaken our value, who have despised our honor, who have purposely refused our majesty and traded it in for what we made and have now become compulsively blind, who have now become overcome by their blindness, who are now overcome by their foolishness, and who are now destined for an eternity of blindness, an eternity of darkness, and shame, and grief, and weeping, and condemnation for despising the greatest thing imaginable. Lord, destroy all that horribleness and let them see again. That's what he's praying. Take away the blindness. Let them see our beauty, our goodness again, our majesty again, our holiness again, our purity again, our honor, and let them be filled with joy because of it forever. 
Jesus poured out his blood, bore God's wrath so that you might see God as he really is and thus treasure and worship the greatest thing that can be treasured and worshiped and then be filled with the greatest joy possible. Because if we could see him as he really is, we would see that he is the most valuable, the most delightful, the most worthy, the most precious, the most mighty, the most gentle, the most powerful, the most humble, the most exalted being imaginable. But we don't see this naturally, do we? Even as those of us who have been saved and born again and given eyes to see God, our eyes are in process of healing, aren't they? Our restoration is in the process. Our blindness is in the process of being cured. Every moment in my heart of, of judging, condemning, belittling anger towards someone, anger devoid of love at a child or, or at Jen, it, it, it declares I'm not seeing God's glory. I'm seeing my kingdom and my desires being threatened. And I'm declaring God is not as important as me because I don't see his glory like I should. So I don't see the beauty in patience that's like God's heart. I don't see the hope that God's gonna take care of this. I'm not seeing him. And I can be calm and I can be patient and I can listen one more time or I can, if I have to discipline my son, I can do it, not because I own him or he belongs to me, but to represent God in a loving way to train him. We don't see God's glory as we should. For many of us men, your lustful moments online fail to declare the truth that God is worth waiting on for his timing, for the fulfillment of our longings, be it that he provide for us sexually through companionship or he allows that desire to be replaced with a better desire in eternity or in the sanctification process. No, pornography says, God, I have my kingdom and I wanna see this my way right now and you're not as important as me, and you can't satisfy me, and you can't fulfill me, and I can't wait. You don't have the power to give me to hold on. All we, just, we, we just don't see him. We don't see him. Every bitter grumble that life hasn't gone right, and it shouldn't have been this way, but it is. Every moment where you're mired in resentment or crippled by, by a heart-ruling regret of what happened to you or maybe what you did, You're failing to declare his glory as the one who will work out all things, even your mistakes, for good. You're not proclaiming. This is the merciful God of compassion and miracle-working power who will reverse what you have messed up in crucial places. You're saying in those moments, my life is about this life and what I wanted from this life and it's all gone bad. And that crushing hopelessness, that crushing despair, it's really painful, but it's also a declaration that God can't do what he says he'll do, which is to work all things out for good, that God isn't who he says he is, which is your greatest joy. And should you lose houses and parents and children and jobs and marriages and positions at church or in ministry, should you lose all that stuff, he is still infinitely more valuable than all those things so that you haven't really lost anything. Every time that you would have to spend with God in his word and in prayer or in fellowship with his people around him that that you have pushed aside be because you're overindulging 
not that there's anything necessarily wrong in enjoying other things, but you're overindulging. I'm overindulging. When, I, when we do this, when we overindulge in, in movies or phone times or video game time or sleep time because we didn't get the rest that we needed, we're saying something. We're saying that God isn't worth the time compared to this other thing. His love for these people isn't worth my time. And we do this because we don't see him. We don't see him as he is. I'm not, I'm not principally trying to make you guys feel horribly guilty. I'm trying to say, folks, we don't see God as we should. We who are saved, even, don't see him as we should. And stuff like this just happens automatically in us. I mean, it, it's, it, it is part of our, our condition that's always in process. As James says, we all stumble in many ways. We are not done yet. That second part was not James. <laughs> but, 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 you know, just all through the day, we, we fail to wonder at the majesty and the awe and the miracle of just being alive, just being conscious, just having a self. It's a miracle that, that you are a conscious entity with feelings and worth and thinking. And, I mean, you are a nonstop 24-hour miracle all the time. Existence is a mind-blowing miracle. We would be justly, uh, uh, we would be in a, in, a, in a right place to just walk around all the time like, how? What? I, the, the majesty of the sky above us, the mountains across the highway, the, the veins, and the skin and the bones that make up the hands right in front of us. We, we fail to marvel and delight and rest in our creator, his wisdom, his power, his tenderness, his gentleness that comes with, I sound like I'm writing Hallmark poems, but they're true, with every warm breeze, with every soft pillow given to us through the means of grace of jobs and family, every bowl of cereal, <laughs> yummy, chocolate, sugary things. You know, they're just gifts of God's tender mercy and his grace, his kindness. He's just saying throughout the day, I love you, I care about you, I love you, I care about you. The cushy seat you're on right now, the warmth in here, that's sourced in something. It's not sourced in El Shaddai or the rent we pay. We go back, 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 back. It's sourced in his kindness all the time. He's just saying throughout the day, I love you, I love you, here I am. And we don't see it. The other night, Matthew asked me, my son Matthew, he's six. I love the, you know, God, I just, I love some of the stuff that comes out of my kids. I mean, some of the stuff's crazy. It's awful, but some of the stuff is awesome. And the other night he asked me, why is air invisible? It's not lost on him. He's just like putting everything together. It's a great question. Why is air invisible? And I thought of trying to answer with a science answer, like, which, by the way, I don't know. <laughs> like, but I thought about I should, and then I realized, no, I, it, it, this really isn't the question of, like the best way to answer this isn't a science answer. Because a, a science answer is how is air invisible? But he asked why is air invisible? And so I went for something else, something that might help him see God. Because I think, and I think the Bible says, that, that the, the greatest why of all created things is always God's glory. The why of everything is God's glory. And so my question is, how is God trying to tell Matthew something about the invisible air, right? Like, what's the invisible air trying to tell my son about God? Because that's what creation is for, that we would be able to get God through what he's made. So I said, I think, Matthew, I think one of the reasons air is invisible is that God is trying to tell us something about him through air. It's, it's always here, like God. It's always with us, like God. We need it every moment, like God. And it's always sustaining us and nourishing us, like God. Even though, I said, we can't see it with our physical eyes, like God. I said, God's like that. So God's trying to tell you something about what he's like through air. And he was like, okay, you know, it's great, it was great. But as I prepared this message, I thought of how God is like air another way. Air is something we take for granted all the time. Air is something we just presume upon. We use it. 
We desperately need it all the time, every second. We can't survive without it. But we never think of it. I mean, we, we, most of us barely consider its value on any given day, in any given moment. We, we don't think, thank you, thank you, thank you. No, we're, we're doing other things all the time. And whether or not that's a crime or not, or just, you know, sanity, <laughs> my point is, we, we just, we miss the most obvious, greatest things. And the most obvious, greatest thing is God's glory because we're blind to it. And, and I want to make a deep dive into something here that I think you get, but I, I just want to press the pedal on this. Seeing God's glory is more than just seeing. Right? I just want to make sure. You know, I am using the word see, which is a f- typically a physical idea, to refer to spiritual realities, to seeing spiritual things. I you know that. But, and, and it's a biblical way to describe spiritual sight. It's just to talk about sight. It's, it's all over scripture. But seeing spiritually it is, I want you to understand this too, it's much more than logical understanding. Like seeing God's glory is much more than uh, doctrinal correctness. Like, okay, God created all things for his glory, and I understand that. I mean, that's no, you're, I would say, no, you, you're not done. If, like, if you say it like that, and that's all it means to you, I understand, I got this grade on this seminary paper, and I answered the John Piper-esque, you know, essay and about God's glory. Is, and I, I get it. Everything's made for I can go to the verses. God created all things for his glory. and I got it, I, and I see it, and it's right, and I agree with it. Even if I just logically say, yes, this is right. That's not seeing. In John 8 and 9, coming back to what I went to earlier, this, these two chapters, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, and this is a big theme, is blindness or sight. Blindness or sight. And there's a healing of blindness in there, but it's all connected to this metaphor of spiritual blindness versus spiritual sight. And in John 8 and 9, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and their blindness to God, and, and he says in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's spiritual blindness, spiritual sight. Jesus is the light. He's the one who gives us sight and light. It's spiritual. And they mock him and they accuse him for exalting himself. And he's like, I'm not exalting myself. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. Jesus is saying, my glory is radiating his glory. So I'm not about being a selfish, self-exalting member of the Trinity. I am here to radiate my Father. Jesus is the most humble being in the universe, which means he is radiating the most humble being meeting in the being in the universe. And then Jesus says in 56, he says, "Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see he would see my day." And he saw it and rejoiced. And, and of course, Abraham probably didn't see a video of Jesus walking in Galilee. He maybe didn't see a vision of Jesus walking in Galilee. He may have, I don't know. But I, at a minimum, I think that Jesus is saying Abraham knew that God would send the Redeemer and that he would walk upon the earth and redeem people from their blindness. And he says, 56, your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day and he saw it and rejoiced. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. I mean, there's, he's not talking about physical sight. Whether they know it or they're just playing it, they are so blind, right? I mean, you're reading this and you get this. But Jesus says to them, he just launches a, 4,000 megaton nuclear bomb into this conversation. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is here asserting his deity as the revelation of God's glory. This is why he calls himself the light of the world. And why he says, before Abraham was, I am. Here I am, your creator. Here I am, the truth of ultimate reality. Here I am, God the Son, revealing God the Father perfectly to the world. 
but, but notice what happens in here, what Jesus says about what happened to Abraham when he saw Jesus. Jesus says Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. There's a huge contrast here. The Pharisees see Jesus. They can see his face. They can see his hands. They can hear his words. They see his healings, his miracles, and they want to kill him. Abraham saw Jesus. They both saw Jesus, but only one of them really saw Jesus. Which one really saw Jesus, right? The proof that Abraham really saw Jesus was not that he got the right grade on the seminary exam or knew the catechism, and not just that he didn't want to kill Jesus. The proof that Abraham saw Jesus was that he rejoiced. He rejoiced. He was over whelmed with delight and a sense of treasuring Jesus and he was satisfied. This is why doctrinal correctness, as, as crucial as doctrinal correctness is, doctrinal correctness is crucial to get you somewhere else or to get you more than doctrinal correctness. And, and this is why gutting through obedience which is necessary at times because we can't do it with cheerful hearts that we want to, but we, we, need, we out of the fear of the Lord and the recognition of consequences, we just obey because and we have to do that sometimes. Very often, we have to just gut through obedience. But that's why, but these two things, doctrinal correctness in itself and gutting out obedience, these things never glorify God the way that he wants to be glorified in your lives. And they never glorify God the way that he should be glorified in your lives. Because simple doctrinal correctness and gutting out obedience, it never says God is delightful. It never says God is, I'm overjoyed to see who he is. And so don't you get it? So you've not really seen him not the way you're supposed to. And you're not really glorifying him, not the way you're supposed to. Because you don't find what you're supposed to find in him. We could use a thousand examples. You know, I talked about a few weeks ago, you know, our anniversary and me bringing taquitos to the parking lot with Jen. Let's celebrate our anniversary with taquitos. What's it saying about my marriage, right? I don't really get it. I don't really see it. So God is, is, is really seen and truly glorified when we rejoice in him. You could say it this way. The proof that we are seeing God as he really was meant to be seen through Jesus Christ is that you are full of joy. And, and, and in this, I'm not saying let's just go through life pretending that we never have to battle with relentless grief or, or real righteous anger or, or encounter fear or that we never have to work through deep disappointment or tormenting regret or the pangs of tempting guilt or temptations to sin. I, it, but in all those things, in all those things, God's desire for us, his, his desired will for us, whether his sovereign will is accomplished, his desired will is that through all those things, we would, we would sense the call for prayer to hope. And, and we, would, we would plea to be able to see in the midst of the sorrow and the torment and the temptation. That we would, we would lay hold of God's truth that would, by his grace, make it possible for us to, even in sorrow, even in sorrow, be always rejoicing. Paul, if you know a great deal about Paul, and I, I think most of you do, he was a man of tremendous suffering and pain. When Jesus first saved him, he told, I think he told Ananias, who was going to baptize him, he said, I'm gonna sh I will show Paul all he must suffer for my name. But he said, I'm sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Because he saw. He saw what all the suffering was for. He saw what all the suffering was accomplishing. He saw that the suffering was revealing God's faithfulness. 
and God's better plan than just these 75, 80 years. And that's what you were saved for, to see the greatness of God for eternity and to rejoice in it for eternity. Ephesians 1 puts it this way, and this is our next point, I think. Wait, no, not yet, not yet. Yeah, there we go. Ephesians 1 puts it this way. Listen to this, follow with me here. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious, of the glory of his grace which, with which he favored us in the beloved. And just, just follow me here. First of all, in love. God did this in love. This is really important if you're going to understand God's glory and not be talked out of it as the pursuit. In love, because God loved you, he did something. Or as he did it, he did it with a love towards you. And what did he do? He predestined you, okay, to be his sons and daughters. That makes sense. Through, his, through Jesus Christ, we get that. He did it through the blood-bought forgiveness of our Savior so that he could reconcile us to himself and make us his children. But what is the end goal of this loving gift of salvation in verse six. It says, to the praise, to the end, to the accomplishing of the glory of his grace. And so, so here it is. This is an, another, God saves us and a, a, in saving us, he makes himself visible to us through all that Jesus has done for us and is in himself and all that he is for us. And he tells us through Jesus, he is a God of lavish grace, of forgiveness and mercy and patience and humility and righteousness. And because of all that grace that we receive from him, we praise him, we exalt in him, we rejoice in him. This is, just, this is another illustration that an authentic experience of seeing God rightly through Jesus, seeing his glory, is rejoicing, is praising. And, and I, want you to, I want you to not give up on this. I want you to evaluate your hearts according to this. I want you to pester God, so to speak, again and again to give you this. That authentic born-again Christianity is not just getting the doctrine right or, or just gutting through obedience. It is really seeing to the end that you rejoice in God, to the end that you praise him, to the end that you delight and are satisfied and are happy in him. That you treasure him. And, and, and you do right now. I don't, I don't want to indict it as if this is all binary, it's all or nothing for, 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 for us. No, you do, I know you, m most of you I know, and, and you treasure God. You, I see you fighting, not just to rejoice in him, but actually rejoicing in him. And not perfectly, and not fully, but truly. Because you're his kids. And it's a mark of being his kids. It's why you sing so loud, Kate. <laughs> oh, now if you feel awful next week. I love your singing. I just love that. I love it when people sing and you can hear them singing. Salvation is God giving us the best possible gift in the universe. It's him and giving us eyes to see and treasure him as the best possible gift in the universe. You were saved to see God's glory and live a life of genuine, real, authentic joy because of that. Point four, God is jealous. He is passionate about this. He is committed to this. So my fourth point is God is passionate for his glory and you're good in it. He's passionate for his glory and you're good in it. Coming back to something we saw in Romans 1. This is a little bit, this is kind of sobering. Um, but I think it's important as part of the, the, the meal today. God is not okay with us not seeing him rightly. He is not okay with being denied the glory and the praise due him. He is serious and committed to his glory. And we see this, what we, are, we, we saw it in Romans 1, but we also, see this, we also see this dramatically. And I think very, like, we can get it quickly language. In, in Malachi, 
Romans 1 has a lot of high concepts that often are hard to understand. Peter says that about Paul's writing. Peter says Paul's writing is sometimes hard to understand. Malachi is easier to understand in places. And so I, I want to look at this because it's kind of a visceral get it moment. In, in Malachi, the Jews, they're a nation under the Mosaic Code. They've been brought back from terrible exile and punishment for forsaking God. He's brought them back to the land. They've got a, another temple system going. And they were called to offer him sacrifices. Sacrifices in grain, sacrifices in livestock. This was the, the ritual Jewish Mosaic Code. And these were to be sacrifices of the highest quality. When they brought the lambs and the goats and the, the, the sheaves of wheat, they were to be highest quality or first priority. They were to be the best stuff. Because, why? Is it because God needs only the best beef? No, it, because he's trying to communicate something to them in their sacrifice. He's worth the best stuff. It's not just what you should do. It's, it's the only reasonable thing to do. This is what God's worth but they were keeping back the best for themselves. And they were giving God leftovers. They were keeping back the best stuff for themselves and they were giving God their leftovers. And listen to God's heart about this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Reverence. Godly trembling. Says the Lord. And by the way, when you see Lord, you can think capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, I am that I am. Says the ultimate one. The source of all things. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now, God doesn't hate blind animals or lame animals. He's saying, I'm trying to make a point, and you are supposed to be making a point about me before the people. By giving me the best, you're supposed to be saying, I am the most beautiful, most reliable source of all things. And you're, you're, you're despising me. You're polluting my name. Invite your most impressive friend over. Are you going to give him the mushrooms that smell like fish because they've been in the refrigerator for two weeks? You're giving them to me. You're going to give him the stale chicken that you can barely look at? You're giving it to me. And God is offended. And he's hurt. Verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, I think what God is saying is, here's how you, you say, you know, the people say, treat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Go to this temple and offer the sacrifices. And God responds, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. And then God says in verse 10, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. It's like, don't, let's just shut the church doors if this is what you're going to bring me. Just cancel if, if you're going to offer me these leftovers and these fumes and say this about me. Don't even bother. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. You're trashing me when you offer me fumes. 
when you offer me leftovers? What are you saying about me, about what I'm worth? And then verse 13, but you say, what weariness this is. Like they're tired of all these sacrifices and offerings and having to go to the temple and having to do this over and over again. And you snored at it. (laughs) Church again. Care group again. DRs again, (laughs) whatever it might be. Or meeting meeting that friend for coffee again who's such a, a tiresome, wearying person. You want me to love them? You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. In other words, if you're gonna offer me the leftovers, if you're just gonna offer me your fumes, then I'll make all you have leftovers and fumes because you profane and trash my name. Now this is hard for us because we don't think of God, (laughs) typically. We don't sing about God, we don't read about God as one offended by the poorness of our sacrifices. But we uphold God as one satisfied by the sacrifice of his son. And we sing about that and we preach about that and we meditate on that and we should Because brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, God is satisfied on your behalf. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus has brought what you and the priests in our fallenness never could. Even when the priests brought the best calf and the best lamb, they could never bring something like Jesus brought to God. At the most fundamental level, God has found the honor and the glory do his name through his son. No one would glorify God the way he needed to be glorified and so Jesus wrapped himself in flesh and came down on earth and he said, I will do it. I will show them what you're worth. And on the night he was crucified, he said, glorify me, God. And why did he say glorify me? He said, glorify your son that your son might glorify you. He was saying, God, sustain me as I go through your wrath and your justice and your punishment and these tears like blood. Sustain me, hold me up so that I can show the world how much you are worth going through for. How good and satisfying that you're worth it all. Like you're, you're so worth it all. Help me say to the world with my sinless life offered for sinners to say to the world, see how just and righteous God is that he will not let sin go unpunished, that he is a righteous judge. See, he doesn't take your sin lightly. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He is a just judge. And then sustain me and uphold me so that I can say to the world, see how loving and compassionate and selfless you are. Because revealing you to the world, God is paying for the sins of the world himself so that they might never have to pay for them in hell. See how loving and compassionate he is. And in all that, Jesus is saying, let them see. Father, let them see. Take off the blinders. Be seen for who you are. It's not a small thing to him. It's everything to him. And it's everything to us. It is life or death for us to see this. These priests in Malachi were were perverting the, the view of God to the nations, to themselves, to their people. They were despising God. And God says, no. I will be glorified. 
from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And this, my brothers and sisters, is why Jesus came and bled and died and rose and ascended to God's right hand so that from the rising of the sun to its setting, God's name will be great. And what that means is that Jesus came to restore spiritual sight. Jesus came so that you might see God as your greatest treasure, your only hope, but your sure hope, your loving sin bearer to the uttermost able to save you, and your righteous Lord who takes all sin seriously so that your salvation and your God have perfect integrity. And he's doing this because also, not only is it the most just thing for the universe to do, he's also doing it because it's the most loving thing he can do for you. God would not be infinite, perfect love if he withheld, if he withheld from you the greatest gift he can give you. Do you understand that? This is important if you don't see God's glory as this awful idea that's about God being selfish and proud. God is the most humble being in the universe, and he is the most exalt-worthy being in the universe. And these two things come together in this. God would not be infinite perfect love if he withheld from you the greatest gift he can give you. And the greatest gift he can give you is what? Himself. And what can you do with him if you can't receive the gift? if you can't see its value, if you can't rejoice in it, right? So he has to give himself to you and then give you eyes to see. There's simply nothing greater he could give you than to fill you with the apprehension of his glory. And so I appeal to you. I appeal to my own heart. Make 2021 the year where your greatest pursuit is to see God's glory rightly through Jesus Christ. And now I need help because I have applications and it's about 10 minutes and I don't know if I should keep going. Scout's honor, can you handle 10 more minutes? Let's pray and ask God's help to handle 10 more minutes, okay? Because I do not like going over all the time and being a weight on you guys this way. I really don't and it's very hard for me not to because the way my brain is. So Lord, would you please give everybody here and online endurance to endorse some application. Would you please help us, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Four, applica three application points. First prayer, prayer. We cannot see God, right, unless he gives us eyes to see him. We've just spent half hour saying that. Thankfully, he has called us, he has called us, he has commanded us to move his hand. He has given you the command, which means he's going to give you that command as his child. He's given you some ability and some authority in his throne to move his hand. He's given you a great gift in prayer to make this seeing him happen. What's the greatest priority of prayer according to Jesus? I mean, I know you know seeing his glory, but, but can you put a verse on it besides that prayer in John 17? Everybody can. You all can. It's right in front of us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the first prayer. It's the first petition when the Lord says, here's how you pray. Here's the priority. Hallowed be your name. Do you know what that means? It means let your name be seen as it should be seen. 
Let your heart be honored as it should be honored. Before any other part of that prayer, before God's kingdom can be established on earth, before your needs or in the meeting of your needs, before forgiveness can be extended or received or in the meaning of forgiveness and receiving your forgiveness, before temptation is to be averted and the evil escaped, and indeed, how all these things take place, in the taking place of all these things, the first thing is, hallowed be your name. Restore our sight. Open our blind eyes. First thing, God. Give us sight again. May you be treasured above all things before we ask for anything else. Because we're blind. We're so blind. May you be worth more to me than laziness or pornography or my phone. Because we're so blind. My kids know so much more about Captain America. They are so much more obsessed with Luke Skywalker and Iron Man and Superman and Batman than about Jesus Christ. And it's not just a funny, cute thing. It's, it's awful. It's bad. And I'm not screaming at them about it. I, I, I don't know how to process it all and, and without turning into some warped fixation. I mean, sometimes we can bring people this stuff and it's just right, self-righteousness, right? You don't glorify God the way you're supposed to glorify him. And God's like, you're not glorifying me the way you're supposed to glorify me. And so as a parent, I don't know what to do always with these things. And I love my kids and I want them to have fun and enjoy things, but, but I don't think it's good that my kids know so, that my William cares so much more about Iron Man than he does about Jesus. And so this is, open my eyes. And so we're praying this. We're praying this by God's grace. We're praying this as a family. By God's grace, we're trying to pray it all the time. My two boys, Matthew and John, they know how to pray this for each other. Matthew and John, lead us in this prayer. Hallowed be your name. Above all things, may you be worth more to me than laziness, pornography, my phone, addiction, every worthless thing that's worth something to me that shouldn't be, or it's worth too much, Right? May you be more precious to me than my marriage. It, it, I mean, it's even the good things. May you be more precious to me than my marriage or my kids or my dearest friends. And let me tell you something. The result of God answering that prayer, to, that he would be more valuable to you than your marriage or your friends or your children will be that you love them better than you ever did before. When God is glorified above all things, all things find their proper place and all things are fed and nourished and empowered the way they're supposed to be. Just as the mighty sun, when the sun is at the center of the solar system, where it's supposed to be, it, it, then it sustains all the planets in their right and their perfect and harmonious alignment to the sun. Just that way, as God, just like that, as God's name is hallowed in your home, in your heart, in your marriage, in your broken, fallen relationships as it should be, then all these other relationships are just made better. They're just more vibrant. There's just more love in them. They're just more freeing. They're more, they're more beautiful. You can love people better when God is at the center of your heart than you could ever love them when they are at the center of your heart, which, by the way, is, not, is moving towards less and less and less love. I, I don't want to say that you can't love people if you don't have God at the center, I think unbelievers love people truly, but, but God is the one who counts the most. And if he's not at the center, eventually everything falls apart, just like every plant in the solar system will be torn and turned to dust. So don't settle. What, what this means is, let your prayers be characterized by the priority of God being seen as all glorious and, and, and as your greatest treasure. Don't settle for prayers only for health or good grades or a salary or even a healed marriage, as good as that is. All good prayers, but all second best at best, second best. If you really want to love someone and you really want someone to, to grow, pray that God would be hallowed in their name. Don't pray first and foremost for the fix, fixing of their circumstances. And don't leave a prayer meeting or a quiet time or a prayer before bedtime or in the morning. Don't leave it without asking for the most important and life-giving, joy-producing prayer, which is God be honored in my life, be hallowed in my life, be glorified, be seen as who you should be because I'm so blind. <laughs> 
So help be honored. Number two, make space. I'm not going to belabor this too much because we've talked about this lately, but I just, I just appeal to you. I appeal to my own heart in 2021. Let your schedule, let your schedule testify to the importance of God above all things. If you want to see God and you want to rejoice in God, you are going to have to spend time with God. Don't expect to see God if you will not spend time with God. But if you will give him priority in your schedule, if you will honor him with the first fruits of your time and not the fumes, God will not be outgiven. If you will pursue God, and you can't do it perfectly, you can't do it fully, but you can do it truly. If you will pursue God, he will not be out pursued. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I have, in my understanding, I mean, this isn't, I can't prove this, but this is what I think, so take it for what it's worth with all the grains of salt. But I, I don't think I've ever seen something change a Christian's life than when someone moves from a life of unplanned, infrequent, haphazard, devotional life to a life of dedicated, consistent time in prayer and devotion to the word. And not all glory to them for being self-controlled. All glory to God for working that in their heart and then for outgiving them. But I don't think I've ever seen a life Christians' lives transformed as when people who don't have a devotional life start to put one together consistently and seriously. I, it just changes lives. It just changes lives. It doesn't save them. It's an expression of their being saved, but it changes their life forever when you do that. My old pastor at Emmanuel Bible Church, he used to say, show me someone who is in God's word and in, and in, and in prayer meaningfully every day. Show me someone who is consistently in God's word and in prayer, and I will show you someone who is in God's will. It, it, but I, I, I'm telling you, there's, it's, I'm sure there are qualifiers, but there's a, there's a reality to that, that when you pursue him, he outpursues you. After I became a Christian, the greatest thing I think anyone ever did for me was, after I became a Christian, I think the greatest thing anyone ever did for me was to get in my face, grab me by the lapels, and say, if you want to thrive with God, you have got to prioritize daily, meaningful prayer time with God and his word. And my experience with God and my emotions with God, they very often go up and down with that. And, and another time I, I can explain to you how that can go wrong with legalism and all this stuff, but because but, but it can. We can make our quiet time our Jesus. I have something on, on the website. Please, if you haven't read it, I just encourage you to read it. It's called 10 Ideas. It's about this, and it goes into more detail. So I'm not gonna do it here unless God moves me to bring a message on it. I, I, but please, 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 please just hear me say, and to my own heart say, make war on your phone. Make war on your phone so that you can make time for God's glory. Make war. I believe we are paying a heavy and God-grieving and glory-starving and soul-destroying price with these darn things. And it's not these things, it's in here and what we do with these things. Well, well, they try to set the world works too, right? There's world system and our flesh, they work together with Satan. But I, I think we don't, we're, we barely understand how to, the, the damage these things are doing and how to deal with it. So please pay attention. Make war on media, on your phone, on the time that you do with it. I'm not saying don't ever use it or don't ever look at it. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, I'm saying make war so that you can make time for God. Last one, uh, see God with others. See God with others. See God with others. Ooh, I need to calm down a little bit here. Psalm 133 says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I love this. The Psalm starts with that. Look, he's saying, look, 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 look at it. Look how good and pleasant it is when Brothers and sisters dwell together around me in unity. When they really do it, look at that. When, when you really see fellowship happening, 
around Jesus Christ. God's saying, look, it's, it's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. And here's why. At the end of Psalm 133, it's a very short psalm. He says, for there, in that place where people come together around me, he says, there I command the blessing. Life forevermore. Where people come together around me, boy, am I being imaged. I mean, is there anything apart from God that images the Trinity than when a group of people come together around God? Boy, is he imaged. That's why he loves the church so much. That's why he loves your faithfulness to our church through all the ups and downs. It images him in a way that's very unique and beautiful to him. There is glory. I'm really almost done. (laughs) We are seconds away from the end here. There is glory in God that he will manifest to you in gathering with others, in bearing their burdens, in them bearing yours, in hearing confessions, in proclaiming forgiveness to one another when you feel condemned. There is glory that God will manifest in seeing him in mutual stories of, of his faithfulness in your actual lives. There is glory that he'll manifest when you war in prayer for other souls and for each other's souls that you will simply not see any other way. You and your prayer closet are important. When you pray, pray in secret, right? It's important, it's vital. Acts, and they all gathered together in the room and they prayed together, also vital. There is glory in mutual fellowship around Jesus Christ that God will manifest that you will simply not experience any other way. Jesus spent too much time the night before he was crucified appealing to his disciples that they pour into each other and hold on to each other and hold each other up and lay down their lives for each other and promising a witness to the world through their love for one another to, to, not, to not have been very serious and very committed to manifest his glory when we really come together to love one another in truth and know each other and develop relationships. So that's my last appeal is see God with each other. I can give you a lot of ideas about how to do this. The DR on Tuesday nights, the whole point of the DR is, is this, to see God through fellowship with each other. It's, it's why we have done care groups for years. But if you don't have relationships that are deep and real with other people, you're you're. There's, there's an aspect of God's glory you're just going to miss. And, and it's not going to witness, it's not going to please God like it, it can. And so I just appeal to you. And I, please check out the DRs. I, it's not the only way, but you can check out care groups. If, if you're not connected to other believers regularly, if there's not a person in this church that you're loving who is also loving you well and consistently, we're, I feel like we're not doing our job as a church. But, but more importantly than that, I just, however it happens and whatever mode it happens, I want you to experience God's glory in fellowship with other believers because it is so beautiful. Don't you know it? You, you, you know this. You've experienced it. Stay at it. Please, don't give up on it. People need you because the Lord has ordained that he will meet them through you. And you need people because the Lord has ordained that he will meet them through you. So, may 2021 be a year that as a goal <laughs> in your heart that you will dedicate yourself to pursuing God's glory, to seeing him well this year. Amen.